Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. Sadly, Pete fell off the train over a frozen gorge and I couldn't save him. Uh, Fingers crossed, though, we will be able to track him down before next week and we'll see what happens. Uh, Today, we are talking about Minute 86, which begins with Steve climbing down toward Bucky and ends with Dr. Zola's long look at a medical table. Joining us on the show, one of our guests from the first season, it's Lorraine Dom. Hello, Lorraine. Hello. Greetings, everyone. Thrilled to have you here to talk about this minute, especially because this is a pretty a pretty big, pretty important moment uh, for one of, one of our characters here, uh, because this is the end of uh, James Buchanan, Bucky Barnes, as he uh, falls off the side of the train. Uh, but it starts, I mean, we, we kind of left last week on this cliffhanger with, with uh, Bucky literally hanging off the side of the train over this uh, gorge as the train kind of uh, you know, uh, goes along the tracks through the winter uh, in the Alps. And uh, Steve is trying to kind of figure out how to save him. And here we have him starting to climb down toward him and stuff. Uh, I mean, how does all of this work for you? And um the way that it plays do you do you enjoy the way that this this scene plays out yeah um i am a big bucky fan so uh to see sort of the beginning of the end and the uh whole new beginning for him uh is a it's an interesting way to uh see how he rises by falling um as one of the great things about the Bucky and Steve pairing is that their stories often parallel. What what happens to one happens to the other, and it's usually on a spectrum where what happens to one is good, and then the same thing will happen to another, but it's it, it's a bad ending. Um, and so where they parallel here is that at the end of uh, the second movie, when Steve falls, Bucky does jump after him. Right. To uh, pull him out of the Potomac. And so uh, I did a little numbers math on that just to see uh, if it was fair to judge Steve for not jumping. And uh, the Alps are about six to eight thousand feet uh, tall. And the um, helicarriers, I couldn't really figure out how high they were. But uh, being that one crashed into the 42nd story of of the Triscalon, I did the math from there, which is about 588 feet. So I feel that Steve was probably made the right choice in not <laughs> jumping after Bucky. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, at least he's not like on the top of the Alps and Bucky's not falling to the bottom of the Alps. He's only falling right. in his gorge. So, you know, it's, right. it's probably closer to that 500 feet or so. But yeah, it's I, I think that it's a funny thing there. And also, I mean, I think there's this element that, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit. I know we've already had our montage and it's been a few years now that Steve has had his powers. And so has, you know, he's, he's started kind of figuring out what he can do, what he can't do. You know, he's been kind of getting a handle on that better, but I I still think there are probably some things that he hasn't quite experienced yet. I mean, when he jumped out of an, of an airplane earlier in this film, he used a parachute and, you know, we see him not doing that later. So at some point there's probably going to be some experimentation with, you know, how far can I fall and still be okay? And at this point, he just may not 
may not be quite there yet. Right. Well, it's falling is such a human fear that, I mean, we tend to forget superheroes for the most part are human beings and falling is one of our great fears. So I, I don't blame him for not jumping after Bucky, but it is again, one of those parallel things where Bucky did jump after him, which I think shows more about Bucky than Steve's reluctance to jump after Bucky. Do you like uh, the way that Sebastian Stan portrays him in, I mean, I guess specifically just this film at this point? Do you, do you enjoy his portrayal? Yeah, um, I think Sebastian Stan as a whole has played sort of the guy who knows he's good looking and knows attracts the girls and can choose to either be a decent person anyways or, you know, benefit from that in ways that we don't necessarily consider uh, socially good. <laughs> and I think he did a very good job earlier in the film of showing jealousy and, uh, you know, I was always the the A guy in our in our little pairing. And now I'm, you know, not even B or C. I'm like F compared to you. <laughs> and um, so I, I think that was it was fun to see the jealousy and it was fun to see him grow out of that, too, and still remain loyal to Steve and loyal to everything. Do you think that, I mean, you know, in this film, we really only get that playing out with Peggy and, you know, she had already from earlier on kind of shown that there was a draw to Steve. And I know there's the whole thing like, would he, would he she have still fallen for him had he remained the puny version of himself or is she only attracted to him because he he got all hot and stuff. But do you think that it would have helped the film if, if there had been a few other instances with um, well, like with women, like in in situations like in bars or things where you could see that Bucky is still like, you know, finding himself second fiddle? Or do you feel like just the one moment with Peggy is enough? I think the one moment with Peggy is enough. Um, I mean, the fact that he never argued for like, you know, to be busted up higher. He's still a sergeant. He's still, um, you know, taking orders. I think that's part of his personality, at least in the beginning, at least from the start. Um, you know, there was talk that he was probably drafted rather than volunteered for the army. Um, there was some talk on Reddit about his numbers and stuff, which I luckily as a female haven't had to pay attention to. <laughs> Actually, according to the wiki, he he and, and Steve actually went right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and okay. put their names in. And then, of course, Steve, Steve didn't get taken. OK, yeah. So, I mean, I always feel like he is more of a like he knows in his soul he's a not a sidekick, but a he's not the leader always. Gotcha. Well, here's here's another interesting question because i mean we see him fall presumably to his death like for an audience who had no idea about the character of bucky barnes going into this film and and that he is a character that figures more prominently in later stories with steve in the comics uh i mean how do you feel that this this plays like do you feel like this is carrying the emotional weight that it would need for an audience who doesn't know that or do you feel like it's not carrying the emotional weight because it's really kind of like for all those comic fans, they know that we're setting something up here. Like, do you think that it's working for in both capacities? Yeah. In movies like this, somebody generally has to die, um, which is unfortunate, but that's kind of how you get the quick emotional 
a low point for the main character. And um, I think like the best friend, because I mean, obviously you don't want Peggy to die. You can't have Captain America die. And there's nobody else who's really poignant enough, I guess. Um, You know, the Howling Commandos were an awesome little group, but that's kind of all they were. They weren't, uh, they were more Bucky's friends than Steve's um due to like the cut footage and stuff where you see them actually fighting so i i feel like it is um you know he's a pretty young man with a lot of hopes and dreams ahead of him and he dies a horrible brave death it's an emotional stakes sort of thing right like by him dying the film is saying you know we're we're letting you know that people can die and uh we're allowing that emotional um level to be there for our characters Yeah. And it was not a, you know, somebody didn't shoot him. I mean, even though that's what got him out on the end of the train was being shot at. But I mean, it was just a horrible accident, really, if you, you know, in a way, I mean, obviously caused by enemies and war and everything that was happening prior. But I mean, it still was just a tragic moment in a war full of tragic moments. Right, right, right. We find out later, I believe in Winter Soldier, that, you know, he f- survives this fall due to Zola's experiments and the Soviet armed forces find him and they'll imprison him and uh, it kind of goes from there. We really have no idea what Zola was doing with him. And he didn't have him for a very long time. Um, you know, it was only, you know, maybe up to a month is about as long as he had uh, for him. But I mean, I don't know. I, I do you get a sense. I, I don't know the way that he was strapped to the table. I it, it almost seemed more like water torture or something rather than <laughs> than experiments. And I, I mean, I know Zola is kind of this mad scientist who presumably was doing things. But I guess the thing that piques my curiosity, and I find it interesting is that there's nothing there's no sign like once Bucky gets out and, and like Steve helps him escape. He never, I mean, there are a few moments where it's like, is he having PTSD? You know, he seems a little more weary than some of the other troops. But like once, once everybody's kind of cleaned up after that initial rescue, like there's nothing that I'm getting from him that shows me that, you know, there's, there might be some, you know, things triggering in him still. Uh, Do you feel like we needed anything to kind of get a hint that, you know, he's still is suffering from whatever it was Zola was doing to him? Yeah. I have two ways of thinking about this. The first one is there's this great meme going around, or it was going around. It's probably <laughs> uh, dated by <laughs> we now. Can, but, we can start it again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, where it shows the two transformations of uh, him into the Winter Soldier and Steve into Captain America. And uh, it replays their conversation from earlier when Steve is rescuing Bucky. And it was saying like, you know, I thought you were taller. And then it was like, um, did it hurt? Is it permanent? He's asking all these questions about the process. And people have sort of surmised that that was him trying to figure out what exactly Zola was doing to him and what were going to be the consequences. Um, again, that sort of parallel story. Yeah, right, um, right. But yeah, the first time I saw this movie, I thought he was mostly just suffering PSTD, plus still processing Steve being Captain America, plus, you know, a relatively innocent, even though he was 
a New Yorker um, person all of a sudden thrown into these world events. And I, I just thought he was exhausted and jealous and, you know, had too many emotions and not enough time to get through them all. Yeah, it's it's interesting how it plays. And I always do wonder about that. Like, are we getting enough to to hint to the possibilities that that there may be something more to Bucky that would allow him to survive? I mean, because, you know, it's not like, well, what we were already joking uh, last week in our conversation about this this uh, trip to the train and how not like none of the team was wearing gloves except for captain america the one who is the super soldier everyone else <laughs> their bare hands they don't have hats on it's like this you're in the alps up in the mountains in the middle of winter what are you doing you're all going to get frostbite and go into hypothermia like it's it's crazy and here bucky is like falling off falling off the side of a train in this weather and and we can see what's below him it's like well you're you're going to either land in a snowbank next to the river or land in the frozen river either way it's going to be damn cold and you're likely going to be you know banged up and bleeding like how how do you survive this and it's it's funny you know i i know they do it's a very hand wavy thing and you know they don't have to do the hand waves until several movies down the road so i think that gives them a lot of leeway as as far as being able to just write it off with a line like yeah you know he survived because of zola's experiments and the and the russians found him like it's very hand wavy I, there are moments like that where i'm like i wish that i like when i rewatched this i wish that it's one of those like six sense sorts of moments where i wish i could rewatch and go oh i didn't catch that little thing and that gives me a clue as to like how he was able to actually do this you know yeah, like they don't even set up like a scene of some people in that gorge doing right. a science experiment or something. Yeah, right. That was my other question. It was like, how how does anyone know where he fell? It's like, yeah, it, yeah it's like uh, you know, especially like Soviet armed forces were here in the Alps. Like, why were the Soviets over here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And like, I mean, obviously the allies know that he fell. So presumably, like, I would like to think that Steve being somebody who, you know, is very, um, you know, this is his best friend. And obviously he's a very patriotic person and would likely say, let's let's go figure out how do we can retrieve his body. And I'd like to think that they, you know, the allies would have gone in there to try to uh, find him and bring him back. Um, and knowing Steve and, you know, what we've been joking about like this insane like super ability to like with photographic memory and everything i'd like to think that he would be able to know exactly where bucky fell but somehow other people get to him first i guess is what happens well i mean considering the russians were allies maybe they found him and then just were like nope we didn't we looked yeah here we found his arm <laughs> yeah well you know it's funny that you mentioned that in the script and this really would have been setting it up for the next film. Um, when this uh, the trooper blasts at Bucky, um, um, Steve actually um, grabs Bucky and is holding on to Bucky. And then the trooper shoots again and hits. It says vaporizing Bucky's arm into a blue mist. And then Bucky falls uh, tumbling into the bottomless gorge. So it's interesting in the script, you actually have a moment where Steve has saved Bucky and this trooper blasts his arm off and and he falls into the gorge. That would have been obviously a lot more foreshadowing for the missing arm that we end up with 
in the later films. Um, also, I guess it would have led to a lot of questions about how the Tesseract weaponry works, and maybe that's why they reworked it. Because every time we've seen the Tesseract hit anybody, the whole thing vaporizes, like their, their whole body vaporizes. Like, why would it just be his arm? That might have been what the team was looking at when they decided, let's not do that. But uh, yeah, yeah, I wonder if that would have played at all, though, you know? Yeah, well, it might have explained a little bit of super serum then, too, where it only vaporized the arm versus well, that's the true. whole body. That's true. It'd give us a hint that something else that uh, Zola had been doing with him. Right. For sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. So so Bucky Falls, this is a picture wrap on Sebastian Stan for the film. We're not going to have any more. Um, but you're a big Sebastian Stan Stan, I guess we can say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, do you, do you like the arc that they've had him um, play over the course of the franchise? Oh, yeah. Um, it's kind of what got me into Marvel more than just going to the movies with my husband. Uh, it suddenly became a, I want to see this movie too type thing. I, I think women in general just sort of, I mean, he's, he's gorgeous. So that helps. But I think just the story of somebody who had a ton of agency taken away from them and had to do what they were told and put into this, uh, literally put into a box and, you know, only taken out when you were good for something. Um, you know, I think that speaks a lot to women in agency and just finding yourself. And, and he has been entirely loyal through this thing. Um, he values a friendship, which is rare for, uh, male, male to male, uh, relations in movies. Usually it's the love interest who gets kind of all of the hero's emotional attention. So to see a, a really great friendship on, a, the film is it's it's nice it's i just think it's a very um surprisingly touching emotional thread throughout a you know an action series can you think of any other friendships like that in the marvel franchise where it's 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 just a solid friendship it's not a romantic relationship that that has been developed well i'm trying to think of any yeah, the science bros, uh, Tony Stark and uh, Bruce Banner, I think. Okay. Uh, they, they have more of a bickering, uh, yeah. like it's not the, the true loyalty that Steve and Bucky have, but they have, you know, it's definitely a friendship and a let's hang out and let's, you know, we're going to have emotionally satisfying conversations. Um, you know, I, I, I think Marvel overall does a good job at showing people having friendships and emotional connections beyond just your one true romance. You know, I suppose if just trying to think of other ones, I, I, I would say that Peter Parker and Ned, they've been developed really well in the um, in their films. You know, I, I, yes. I think that's a that's a set of um, friends that seems like really strongly developed. Right. Um, Thor and Loki, I mean, they're they're antagonistic a lot of the time, but they are brothers and they they have a very brotherly relationship. I feel like I mean, they have their true bickers and then they have their, you know, just brothers razzing each other. Right, right, right. Um, And so uh, I and then like especially when they brought in the sister um, for uh, Ragnarok and how I mean, it was like. Thor and his two goth siblings. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think, yeah. Or like Thor and, um, oh gosh, I can't think of her name right now. 
Um, like Valkyrie? Tessa Thompson. Yeah, Valkyrie. Uh, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's very, some are kind of like we're, we're besties right now for this film because we're in it together. But, yeah, um, yeah, you yeah. know, for the most part, there's very good friendships. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so Bucky is gone. Uh, rest in peace, Bucky, at the bottom of the gorge. Um, we, we see the train and finally we get to see Gabe again. It was very strange, and I, I'm still not completely thrilled about how all of this was structured, because you have the whole team up on top of this ridge, only three of them uh, zipline down to the train. I don't know why the whole team doesn't just go. I feel like it. it's, what are they going to do? Like, how are they going to catch up to the train to help at all? It, it seems so strange to me, but whatever. Gabe joins them, though, and what we saw Gabe do is he stood on top of the train, or he actually knelt on top of the train with his gun pointed at the door, almost as if, you know, he was there just in case someone came out. And that's that was kind of like writing his character off for the entire action scene that takes place inside the train when Steve and Bucky go in and get separated and all of this stuff happens. And so Gabe Jones is kind of completely dropped, and it was very strange and frustrating to me um, at this point, though, we finally see, okay, so this is what Gabe had been doing. I wish they had just, they had set this up for us so that we knew, and he wasn't just, you know, left kneeling on the train. It just, it was so strange to me. Anyway, what he has been doing, apparently this whole time, is working his way toward the engine of the train. And here we see him just as it's about to go into a tunnel. He breaks the glass uh, window on the, the kind of the, I guess the moon roof in the train. I'm not exactly sure what, uh, but, and then he drops in into the engine room, into um, the engineer's booth that uh, Zola has set up with all of his monitors and uh, his snow piercer, you know, weird circular thing at the front, uh, the Tesseract energy for the train, all that good stuff. Uh, but uh, Jones drops in here and holds his gun up uh, to, to Dr. Zola. And there's a, a Hydra trooper in here. And uh, that's kind of the end of the scene. In the script, actually, Jones even gets a line. He says, stop this goddamn train. I don't know why they don't let him say that. He just kind of stands there with his gun up and and we cut. Um, any last thoughts about this location on the train, about the train itself, about Gabe Jones uh, and the capture of Zola? Any last thoughts here before we uh, head back to London? Uh, I loved the Halloween commandos, so I wish they would have gotten just a little bit more than a montage. Um, like you said, it would have been fun to see Gabe kind of crawling from car to car in a what we can assume is slippery, icy train going 80 miles an hour with a lot of winds and yeah. God knows what falling off the mountain. So I think <laughs> that would have um, kind of looked a little bit more heroic. Like I am focused on this mission and I am going to get Zola. Um, and then, you know, yeah, to ha I don't necessarily think he needed that line, but I think he could have had one little quip and it would have been kind of like a good send off for the howling commandos too. Cause we don't see much of them afterwards either. Yeah, right. They're going to thin out quite a bit here. Um, yeah, it would have been nice. It would have been nice. Um, but, you know, maybe they'll come back in some other capacity down the road in a one shot or a series or something. Yeah, I was hoping they would get a Marvel series, but I don't know. Maybe it's war is not the, <laughs> the interest that it used to be. Yeah, right. There's always that. Um, all right. Well, we go back to London. 
And uh, back to the exterior of the Allied headquarters. According to the Marvel Wiki, this is February 3rd, 1945, just two days after the train and the capture of Arnim Zola. So once they caught him on February 1st, you know, it was just a couple days to arrange transportation, get him up to London. Um, and we see a brief glimpse of the Daily Mail outside. It says, war rages in Europe, London burning. So now we know um, that the bombings are taking place here. Uh, otherwise, it's just kind of peaceful, people bustling by. Um, I mean, any any thoughts from you about this exterior shot of London, or should we head into the interrogation room? I thought it was a little too quick. Like the first time it happened, I didn't realize they were back in London. I thought they were just at some Allied base, you know, somewhere behind the lines. I guess so. It 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 took me a bit. Like I think it was like the third watching where I'm like, oh, they're not in Europe. They're in. They're further back. They're in London. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, all right. So we're going down into presumably some of the lower levels of the Allied headquarters. This is an interrogation room that we go into. And we see the door open and Dr. M uh, Arnim Zola steps inside. He's looking much less put together than he has been up to this point. Um, and it looks like an MP kind of brings him in. And, uh, yeah, he doesn't have his coats on or anything. He's got his shirt, like, half tucked in and uh, no hat. And just, you know, he looks a little, you know, worse for wear. And the and the MP gives him his glasses. And I think that's a, an interesting element that I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I didn't really think about that that much. But would they, I, I guess they would take the glasses and check them just to make sure there's... Nothing with him or anything? I think he was on suicide watch. I don't know if you need to trigger warning for that. Um, I think he was on suicide watch. They took his glasses and his belt and his like other items, which are generally used for trying to kill yourself. Um, and they even talk about how, uh, you know, he didn't bite the cyanide pill when most Hydra officials have. You know, that's interesting. I didn't really think about the suicide watch element, but yeah. So do you think that when they got him, one of the things that they did initially was like, you know, since he didn't bite that cyanide capsule, do you think that they pull pull the tooth out? Like, how would you, or would you just, because I, I don't know how cyanide teeth capsules work. Is it the whole yeah, tooth that has to come I. out or is it like a pocket in the tooth with the thing in it? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I'm assuming you have a real tooth removed and then a fake tooth with a that's that's kind of filled with cyanide or something that you yeah, can crush. It's so, crushable, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if they just had a dentist examine to see if he had all his real teeth or My God. Yeah, I mean <laughs> Yeah, right. Like can you imagine <laughs> like if you have this fake tooth full of cyanide in your mouth and you're like eating an apple or something and you bite it wrong and my God, like what a, like you have to be so careful. Once you make the decision, I'm going to have a cyanide capsule put in a tooth in the back of my mouth. Like, it's like, you're going to like, even brushing your teeth, you're going to say, I, I need to be real careful. I don't want to jostle that tooth. I don't flossing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Forget flossing. Oh my gosh. I didn't really think about the complexities of. <laughs> yeah. Or like if, if you really have to bite down on it, like they, you know, try to make it like a childproof cap where you have to intentionally do it. Like, how hard is that, too? Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, like, is it like, God, I can't, I can't get it. I can't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, well, maybe that's what it is. Like, he's, he's been trying to kill himself. He just, yeah, he has just this, <laughs> why can't, can't this work him? up the jaw strength? Oh, my gosh. Zola yeah. and his weak jaw strength. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> the untold story. Uh, yeah. If you see somebody like chewing a lot of gum or something, maybe right. they're in training. <laughs> but I also feel like since he didn't kill himself, that they were a little more secure in knowing that he could be turned or uh, interrogated because he wouldn't kill himself. Yeah. Like, I think that's that's also what they determined. Well, and it's funny because he walks in here and, you know, goes through the process of getting his glasses back from the guard and puts them back on his face and then kind of walks, just kind of checks the room out. While he's doing this, though, you can hear in the background sounds of torture, I'm assuming, from another room. Like you hear kind of some screaming and and I'm like, God, this is... It's an interesting setup for this because clearly the allies, I mean, they're obviously not Hydra agents because as, as we will find out, like every other Hydra agent that they've ever caught has bit the cyanide capsule and, and killed themselves. So presumably, I guess they're torturing some Nazis in the other rooms. Right. Or, I mean, we can pretend that the allies were totally good guys, too, and that screaming and torture was just faked for Zola's (laughs) auditory experience. But uh, I, I sadly don't think that's what it was. Yeah, I know. I know as much as we'd like to think. I do think that it's funny that the first thing that we see when, um, when we cut to this interior shot, aside from the door, the open door and him coming through uh, to the left of screen is it's a just you know soft focus but there's a tap really high on the wall like ridiculously high like over zola's head high like why is this tap so high and Uh it's dripping and i'm like is this like the most tropey element here in this room aside from i suppose the screams coming from the other rooms but just the fact that there's a drippy tap i'm like god this is just like (laughs) What a trophy thing to include. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's like super stark for a movie that has been very red, white, and blue, uh, you know, especially in the moments leading up to it. So, yeah, it's it was played very real war scripty, if not a little cheesy compared to what we had been getting. So it was quite a switch in uh, how you're supposed to emotionally ingest the scene. Yeah. Yeah. And it's much quieter. Like we've, well, and I suppose that this is, you know, part of the, you know, filmmaking 101 and certainly something that Joe Johnston um, has shown his um, proclivity to do is like, you have these big intense moments. Like we just had this big uh, montage that went on for a few minutes. It culminated in this, um, the, the howling commandos and Steve and Bucky um, attacking this train of Hydra's to get Zola, and you've got this battle on this uh, inside of it with um, Steve, Bucky, and some Hydra troopers, and Bucky dies. Like there, it's it's a you know kind of a big action moment here uh, in the in the early 80, 80th, you know eighty two through five or so of this film. That's been pretty intense, and so this is kind of that moment that we have a little bit of respite. And so here, yes. yeah, I mean we have the story going on. Zola is kind of taking a, a little bit of time to kind of look around, but it's a very quiet minute. And it's a chance for us as the audience to finally just take a breath. And I, I think that's an important thing to pay attention to. Process everything that's been happening. And it's also like the start of a new climb too. I mean, I won't spoil the upcoming minutes, but um, there's definitely, I think, a purpose to the quiet beyond just this one scene. And as a 
break from the previous. Definitely, definitely. Um, we'll talk more about Zola in the next minute. Um, the only other thing I wanted to bring up here is this, like, he has a very long look at the medical table. And it just made me wonder, like, this is Dr. Arnim Zola, kind of a, I guess you would call him kind of a mad scientist. He had been experimenting on Bucky. He had been you know, kind of inventing all these different um, things for for Johann Schmidt. And I can't help but feel like when he sees this medical table, his mind goes to uh, the experiments that he had been doing on Bucky and um, the idea or perhaps the, the you know, his brain might be going to, I wonder if they're going to be putting me on that and doing the same thing to me. Uh, what did you think about the fact that we, he looks at this table for so long? Uh, well, I think it was interesting that at least on screen, Bucky never spoke of what happened to him. Number one, I just took it as a reminder of this was the guy who tortured Bucky. So we're, you know, we're not supposed to feel much sympathy when he in turn might be tortured. Um, but also, I just want, I felt like he was thinking, like, what did Bucky tell them? Because that would play a lot into his fate then, too. Um, because if they think he has the super serum soldier formula figured out, you know, they're probably going to want it want to replicate that again so which you know he needs to be alive to do and they're going to have to make him willing to do it so right right yeah uh, i i definitely want to talk more about zola and his um the way that he's been portrayed through the film and and all of that i i think we can save that for tomorrow because we, we're going to be going through an interrogation for quite a while so right um so let's uh let's wrap today up and we can come back tomorrow to talk more about zola and and kind of what his what he's thinking what he's been wanting all that good stuff so how's that sound wonderful all right well lorraine thank you so much for joining me here today on the marvel movie minute thanks for having me all right. Well, that's it for today, everybody. So um, remember, uh, you can learn more about Marvel Movie Minute, what we're up to over at marvelmovieminute.com. Check out the membership so you can get your episodes early and you can avoid all the ads, all that good stuff. Plus, we have hiatus episodes between the seasons that you can check out. So um, we will be back next time. So until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. <laughs>